This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp helps businesses grow. If you're just getting started or you're already building a growing business, MailChimp makes it easy to connect with your customers and sell more stuff. It's totally free to get started, no expiring trial, and no credit card required. For more sophisticated marketers, pro features like multivariate testing offer the same power you'd expect in an enterprise marketing platform in an intuitive, easy-to-use interface. Learn more at MailChimp.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Creative Mornings podcast. This is Matt, and this week we're going to Creative Mornings in Stockholm. So Spotify is actually a Swedish company. This is Rochelle King. VP of Data Insights and Design at Spotify. The corporate headquarters is actually based in Sweden, um, but we actually have a pretty large office. Our new, our American headquarters is based in New York. So with my job, I actually could be either in Stockholm or New York, but when I first started, I thought it was really important to be at corporate headquarters. And on this week's episode, we'll be hearing Rochelle's lecture from last November of 2015, when she spoke as part of a series on work. And I was very grateful that she had the time to speak with me on the phone. Yeah, thanks for asking me or reaching out. I'm I'm assuming that that means that the talk was good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. And the things that I love about it, we'll get into a little bit later once our listeners have heard it as well. But there are some things I want to talk about first. One being your professional background is a bit varied. And before you were at Spotify, you were with Netflix, right? Yeah, I was, I mean, like, I have this long background in both technology, but also, like, I was I was in Silicon Valley working on silicon when it was, you know, when that was what Silicon Valley was about. But uh, Netflix I was at before Spotify. Um, I just love entertainment in general. So whether it's movies and TV shows or whether it's music, like, those are all things that I really, really love. So I love working on products that tell stories to people in those ways. And your title, VP of Data Insights and Design, is it just me or is that an odd cluster of responsibilities? Yeah, no, I've actually, always, it's funny, I've always had weird clusters uh, throughout my career. So at Netflix, I actually managed uh, the design work, but also content operations, metadata and localization. So I think I just have this history of always having things that don't seem like they belong together together. But actually, uh, and so in my organization, we have the analytics team, user research and the product designers. But they actually fit together quite well because we really think about Data and design are both interfaces to our customers, and they're both ways that our customers communicate back to us, right? The data is just our customers telling us what they're doing with our product, and the design has to uh, capture that data, but also be able to like express what it is that we need our customers to be able to do. So in this, it, it is actually a pretty synergistic relationship, even if it doesn't seem like it, they belong together right away. And when you put those two things together, I guess this is kind of like my talk, but when you put two things together that seem like they might conflict, you actually get way better insights coming out of it. Right. And this all adds up because even though the Creative Mornings theme for your talk was work, you got a little more specific and focused in on conflict. Was that Creative Mornings nudging you in a direction or is that your approach to the theme of work? Oh, it was, it was actually something that like I've always thought about relative to work, right? It, it goes back to what I was just saying, which is like, when you bring in people with different perspectives, it's always a good thing. And I think too often the word conflict is just charged with all this negative emotion or energy. And then because of that, people just don't feel like they want to even 
deal with conflict, so they run away from it. But it's actually a really, really helping thing to have, and it's the thing that kind of pushes us to be better sometimes. So I feel like it's an essential like ingredient in work, if we can just get some of that negative associations <laughs> you know, out of it. One of the things I love about this talk is that Rochelle hits her points and gets out. <laughs> Short and sweet. She gives us a glimpse into how she handles some of the real-life conflicts both at Netflix and Spotify. And in the rest of our phone conversation, which you'll hear later, she even gives me a little bit of free therapy. It might help you as well. There are a bunch of slides, and I'll chime in whenever necessary. For instance, right now, you need to know that her talk begins with a slide that reads conflict. And here you have it, Rochelle King from November of 2015 at Creative Mornings, Stockholm. Okay. Okay. Um, so I have actually spent most of my life putting a lot of time and effort into avoiding this word. And the reason is because it's supremely uncomfortable. And even if I have a great relationship with someone, the first time that I think about having to approach them with some kind of potential conflict, I have a physical reaction, like someone is grabbing your stomach while simultaneously punching you in the heart. But what I've learned is that sometimes it's those conversations that are actually the richest ones. It's especially when we engage in those divergent points of view that we learn more. And those are the conversations that have pushed me and helped me to grow the most. Now, I know that most of what I'm talking about right now is really about human-to-human -human or personal conflict. But it's just as hard when it happens in the work environment as well. And unfortunately for me, especially when I became a manager, I came to find that engaging in conflict would have to become a natural part of my job and necessary. So for the past couple of years, I've been working at Netflix and at Spotify, where data is really embraced. And sometimes data and design are seen as opposing forces, things that are different from each other. But what I've actually found is that working at the intersection of these two worlds has actually helped to push my creative process forward. And actually, that agitating the creative process with a little bit of thoughtful and conscientious conflict is actually very, very beneficial, and it actually facilitates and encourages richer conversations to happen, not just with your peers, but sometimes with yourself. So what I'm going to share with you today are five things uh, that I've learned along the way about dealing with conflict. Some of this conflict might be about data and design. Some of it is just about people. Uh, so hopefully it'll be helpful. So the first thing about conflict is that before you engage in it, you want to make sure that the battle that you're going to have is going to be worthwhile. We all know that in any creative process, there's going to be some kind of conflict along the way, whether it's with someone else in your team, another team in the company, or maybe even with yourself. And so before you go through the effort of donning your armor and putting on all of these weapons, right, it's important to make sure that the battle that you're going into is something that you really believe in and that you think is worth fighting for. Now, as designers, we often say, it's really important to frame the problem correctly. Ask us, how can we cross this river? Don't tell us to build a bridge or a boat, right? This is something we say often. But I'm actually saying that it's more important to first ask, why are we crossing the river? What's actually going to be on the other side? Is it going to be more 
of this foggy landscape? Or might we arrive at this lovely temple? And what's the goal of crossing the river? Is it to get there as fast as possible? Or is it actually that we want to have a comfortable journey that we enjoy along the way? If you have two teams that are arguing about crossing the river, one that is arguing to make a decision to get there as fast as possible, and another that's arguing to make a decision so they can ride there in comfort, those two teams are never going to come to a healthy resolution. So anyone here who works with data knows that one of the best ways to help align groups before you embark on a mission is to actually have very clearly stated success metrics ahead of time. And what those metrics do for you is that they help you understand what is the potential impact of what it is that we're going to do. And it also helps you measure your progress along the way. But I know that sometimes when I talk about metrics, it can feel very cold and not very human. So I've actually found that it's really useful to think about tying these metrics back to real human behavior. Now at Spotify, one of the metrics that we care most about is engagement. Daily active users divided by monthly active users, DAU over MAU. And essentially what that's doing is measuring how sticky is our product, how likely are people to come back on a regular basis. But it's not so inspiring sometimes to talk about increasing DAU over MAU. And we want to find something that actually more emotionally resonates with the people who are working on our product. And so when I first got to Spotify, one of the things that I did was to partner up with the analytics team and think about how we can articulate a metric like engagement in terms of real human behavior. So if we think about what Spotify is trying to do as a streaming music service, it's to get people to play music. And if people are coming to our product and not playing music, we can't really say that we're successful. And that's not going to lead to more engagement. This is also, therefore, much easier to get the team emotionally bought in to helping our customers and our users play more music. So the point here is that it's really important before you embark down a path where you know that there might be some conflict to actually make sure that you understand what it is that you're fighting for, to articulate it in a way that actually you can emotionally get behind and really believe in. Because you know that that journey is going to be hard. So once you know what you're fighting for, it's really important that you are able to express it well. And I know that before I go into a conflict, I feel much better about it if I'm actually prepared. At Netflix, uh, we used to actually have a very strong culture of debate. And it's really hard to be successful in a company that has a culture of debate if you don't enjoy debate or you aren't good at it. So one of the things that the head of product and I did with our teams is that we decided that we were going to create a forum that allowed people to practice the art of debate. And I know that it's not as common here in Sweden, but in the US we have a lot of these debate classes and debate clubs, places where there's a statement that's made and you have teams from different uh, schools coming and arguing for or against that statement. So we actually did the exact same thing at Netflix. We had a stage, we got podiums, we put a timer on the stage, and we made people come up on stage and actually debate each other. And we picked topics that were usually very timely, 
things that were in the ether. We picked topics that were slightly controversial. And the topics were things like Netflix has a culture of fear. Argue for or against that. Or that we are too dependent on data. Argue for and against that. And oftentimes, we would actually assign topics to people when it was in strong opposition of what they really believed in. <clears throat> so I was asked to argue against the statement that better visual design can lead to more retention. Now, not everyone really uh, appreciated being put on stage <laughs> and having to argue with each other. And I know that it's uncomfortable. We actually did make it optional at some point. <laughs> But the thing is that everyone that we saw do that got better at it. And the reason they got better is because essentially it's a performance and you practice these things. And it was really great because it was in fact a safe environment because it was a performance. It was a staged fight. And honestly, there's no better way to win an argument than to be able to state your opponent's view better than they can state it themselves. Because what that really does for you is that it makes them feel that you are actually empathetic and understand where they're coming from, and therefore your reasoning must be logical. Now, in the spirit of trying to win at all costs, I would also see people become more brave, and they would actually say things that were being whispered in the hallways in order to support the arguments that they were trying to make. And that was actually also very, very liberating. So I personally loved it. The last thing here is that there's no better way uh, to improve a skill than to actually perform it and practice it on stage in front of all your peers. <laughs> so that was also very good for us. Now, being comfortable with debate is actually one of the best ways that you can actually um, start to vet the strengths and weaknesses of your own ideas. So I found that engaging in debate is very, very helpful. Okay, so I don't know how many of you are like me, but when I have a really great idea, the first thing that I want to do is jump up out of my seat and run down and find someone to share my idea with because, you know, I can't be alone in basking in the glory of my mind, right? So I have to just go find someone to share that idea with. And if I'm totally honest, I usually find someone who's a kindred spirit. I find another designer, or I find someone who thinks just like me, because then we're going to high-five each other and they're totally going to get it. Um, but in reality, this is actually the best time for you to actually seek out your enemy and share your idea with them. And I know that in those early stages of the idea, they're like these little babies, and you want to protect them, and you want to let them grow up a little bit before you start to share them with anyone who's going to tear it apart. But that's really the best time to find that person that's your enemy and throw it to the wolves. Okay, so who is your enemy? I know who my enemy is. I'm sure you all have one. This is the person who, when you see them at the coffee machine at work, you kind of go the other way. <laughs> the person who you're always butting heads with, uh, the person who just never sees it the same way as you do. So I'm sure that saying, hey, go find that person and engage them in a conversation about your precious idea doesn't sound that comfortable. But actually, engaging with your enemy at an early stage does two things for you. One, it's early enough that you're hopefully not too wed to the idea, and the stakes are therefore not that high. Wouldn't it be better to engage this person in a conversation about your idea and have them tear it down one-on-one -on -one when you're prepared, rather than in a room full of people three weeks later? The second thing is that whether or not you want to admit it, 
seeking out feedback from people is actually a sign of respect. You wouldn't want to hear what your enemy had to say unless you at least respected their opinion on some level. And that actually does help you to build a better relationship with them. Now, whenever I do this, I'm usually quite transparent. I will actually say, hey, listen, you and I don't usually see eye to eye on things. And so that's why I'm bringing this idea to you and I want to see what happens. And what I found is that usually my opponent will actually embrace the exercise and they don't make it as personal because I've approached them with it as an academic exercise, right? So we have a strong, great discussion and it's healthy and it usually goes well. So seeking out your enemy at an early stage and putting your idea forward to someone who you perceive as being the person that generally opposes you the most is really helpful in pushing those ideas further than they might have gone if you were just reinforcing those ideas with voices that sound just like yours. And it really, really helps to have you become less attached to your ideas so that you can keep your own mind open as you explore other solutions. So at some point, you do want to find a way to resolve the conflict. And there's a couple of ways that we can do this. Of course, we can always discuss it and come to consensus. Another thing is we can also pick someone to just make a decision and go forward with that. And I'm not going to make the expected joke here about Swedish versus American cultures. Um, but when you work in uh, my field, one of the things that we can do is say, hey, we're actually not going to decide between these two ideas internally. What we're actually going to do is put these two things forward to our users and to the public and let them decide. So essentially what I'm talking about here is something like A-B testing. Now, I know that sometimes when we talk like this, it can feel uncomfortable to take yourself out of the process of the decision-making and leave that up to others, and especially leaving it up to data. But the thing is that behind every single point of data is a real person. And data is just the language that we're using to have a conversation with those people, with our users. And just like with an individual, you can have a conversation that is dull and boring, or you might have a conversation that is interesting and meaningful and that might actually push you and spark learning. It's the same thing when you're having those conversations with millions and millions of users through data. So I want to talk just a little bit more about inserting conflict or inserting competing solutions into a conversation. So when you're designing to learn, it's actually really important to present your customers with as many differentiated uh, or opposing solutions as possible. And actually, the more clearly those differences are, the stronger a response and a clearer response you can actually elicit from your customers. And they will be able to better articulate what's important to them, and you will be better equipped to understand what matters to them. So for example, at this point, Rochelle flashes a slide that reads choice with two photos of strawberries on a Japanese market stand next to each other. The only discernible difference being the color of the strawberries and the price point. Do you think it would be more interesting to have a conversation with your customers about the strawberry on the left versus the strawberry on the right? Okay. And aside from the fact that this single strawberry costs, wait, I did the conversion, costs 42 crowns. <laughs> <laughs> or that this single strawberry costs 25 crowns, because Japanese people pay a lot of money for fruits, <laughs> um, it may not be that interesting a conversation. 
It might be more interesting to have a conversation about whether they'd prefer an apple or an orange or a strawberry, because what you're doing is you're giving them more dimensions to talk about. They can talk about color, they can talk about texture, they can talk about flavor, they can talk about taste. But having those differences be very clear and things that they can actually recognize allows you to understand what starts to really matter to them. Now, as designers, we get to choose what kinds of conversations we want to have with our customers. And so we can choose whether we're going to be talking to them about strawberries versus strawberries or apples versus oranges versus strawberries. So what I've found is that inserting conflict into these conversations and inserting these different opinions about what is right into a conversation can actually be more about learning as much as possible rather than motivated by winning the argument. One detail about the slides is that they have a Japanese theme to them because Rochelle was recently on a vacation in Japan with her family while putting together this talk, and she used photos from the trip as her slideshow. So the next slide she flashes has the word avoid under an image of these little scraps of paper tied to pieces of string. Okay, so when you're in Japan, you can go to a temple and you can get your, your future told on these pieces of paper. And if your fortune is not good, you can actually take that piece of paper and tie it to a string at the temple so that you can leave it there and then all that bad luck won't come true. And just like when I was in Japan and I tied my fortune to this string because uh, I got a really bad fortune, <laughs> you know, I'm, you also want to sort of do things to avoid conflict in the future or to at least minimize it or be smart about it. So I'm gonna ask you all to indulge me for a second as I tell you this story. When I was in California, I used to play Japanese drums. Um, and they're these, these large drums and you play them like this. My teacher, my sensei, was very, very strict. He was very old school Japanese, very disciplined, very scary, very strong, expected a lot of us. Uh, and I was uh, playing in a song and playing along and I make a mistake. And I'm playing the same song again and I make a mistake in the exact same spot play it again and make the mistake in the same spot. So he comes marching over to me and he says, hey, when you take a walk in the woods, and you're walk, 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 and then bam, you hit your head on a tree. The next day you go for the same walk in the woods and you walk, 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 bam, hit your head on a tree. In Japan, we call this stupid. <laughs> Is this not stupid in America too? Uh, and yeah, <laughs> it is stupid in America too, and it's stupid if you're walking down the same path over and over again and you're not paying attention to your surroundings and what's going on such that you can avoid that tree in the future. Uh, so I started to think about this uh, and notice when is it that I'm making the same mistake over and over again? When am I getting to the same fights over and over again? Um, and so what we start to do is we start to look for patterns. And those patterns might be in different things. They might be patterns in the topic that you're fighting about or that you're finding conflict in. It might be a pattern in the approach or the way that you're getting into conflict, or it might be a pattern in the solutions for how you resolve those conflicts. And when we actually take a step back and see these patterns uh, from far away, hopefully you're actually going to learn something about resolving conflict in one situation, and then you can actually apply it to others. So when we were first establishing the design team at Spotify, it was relatively new, and we found that we were trying to argue a lot for things that were important to design, but which in a company that didn't prior have a strong design voice, 
people just weren't accustomed to talking about. And we would say things like, you know, design quality is really, really important. We really need to emphasize design quality. And what the rest of the company might hear is that we wanted to add three months of time to shipping so that we could polish up all the details. But we didn't want to add three months to shipping either. And so what we found is that we could start to submit UX bugs into the system. And no one really seemed to complain. So instead of getting on our soapbox every time and starting to lecture about design quality, we could just submit these bugs. And what we learned was that taking the things that were important to us and actually reframing it into the language and into the systems that were already in place from the strong tech and product culture actually helped us to get those things done and to help us communicate better. So then we start to talk about things that are like bad experiences or bad user flows as UX crashes. And this helps to facilitate the resolution of those kinds of conflicts. So it's actually important sometimes to get a little meta and to actually take that step back and analyze, you know, why is it that we're getting into this conflict over and over again? Think about that and then apply those learnings to the future. So what I've learned about conflict uh, is that it's mostly about a mindset and explicitly practicing uh, uh, conflict actually makes it bearable, but actually embracing it allowed me to take control of it. So although I still don't love conflict, what I have found is that inserting it and embracing it and provoking it is sometimes one of the best things you can do to the creative process. Thanks. You can watch the video of this talk at creativemornings.com. And we'll get to more of my chat with Rochelle on the phone. But first, we've got to take care of some business. This episode is also made possible by Envision. And when it comes to tech stuff, I am not the brightest guy. <laughs> but the director of user experience at Vice, Jessica Brown, is here to make me smarter. Totally. Um, <laughs> Envision is a way to share and discuss designs with stakeholders, users, basically anyone who has an interest in the products that are being designed. It's a really helpful tool to see, you know, how designs are progressing, have conversations around them. Right. So say I work with you at Vice and I'm not on the technical side of things, but I want to know how the new mobile app is looking. You would just send me an Envision link? Exactly. If you wanted to see it on your mobile phone, it could replicate a lot of the things that the phone does. So transitions, having elements on the screen be sticky and stay in place. So you could follow that link and click through and basically have have a prototype app experience. Giving teams the freedom to prototype, review, iterate, manage, and user test web and mobile products without a single line of code, Envision helps 2 million designers at companies like Evernote, Adobe, Twitter, and Salesforce unlock the power of design-driven product development. Do I sound like I know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Follow the company on Twitter at Envision App. One of the things I found so interesting about Rochelle's talk was that I feel like it's a scientific look at creativity which, now that I think of it, isn't too surprising for someone who works so closely with data. But it's essentially inoculation, injecting conflict into the workplace to find the antidote or a solution to a problem. Yeah, that's, that's, that's totally interesting. Um, yeah, I, I actually find like it's a good way to just challenge yourself. You know, um, is this the question where you're trying to get to the how do you find creativity? Because I was like trying no. to like crap a little bit. <laughs> no, it isn't. But it's really funny that you would say that because as I was listening to your talk and prepping for this interview, 
I thought to myself that your entire lecture could be an answer to the how do you challenge yourself creatively question. So by all means, you can go ahead and answer that now. It's interesting because when you wrote that question in the, the email, um, I was thinking about it and, and the past six months, I've really been trying to push myself creatively by suspending judgment on things. So I'm actually like a pretty cynical person at heart. <laughs> And, uh, and like a lot of people, like, you know, you kind of pass judgment on things that seem new or seem like things that you wouldn't normally try out, right? I'll say like, oh, I would never do that. That seems so stupid or that seems really cheesy. You know, I'm just not even going to engage. But honestly, like, if you take a, a look at that, that's really like that judgment is a self-defense mechanism because you're worried about how other people will perceive you. Uh, and so what I found with like trying these things that I normally wouldn't try, I really normally wouldn't try them because I actually don't think I would like them. And I've, I found that what I have to do is like suspend judgment long enough that I can actually try to experience the thing as though I was a person who would like it. Right. Which is so difficult to do most of the time. At least for me, I can admit to that as well. Like hearing you mention, for instance, how at Netflix teams would have to debate one another. Yep. Yep. That to me sounds yep. terrible. Like, I get so nervous just watching other people perform sometimes. I was talking to someone yesterday, and we were talking about empathy. And we we're saying that too many times empathy is misstated as you imagine yourself in that other person's shoes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so because you're seeing someone on stage or seeing someone, like, having to, you know, perform, when you put yourself in their shoes because you don't like performing, you start to feel really nervous, right? But you, But if you're really truly empathizing with them, you would feel it as they feel it, which is that they actually enjoy being on stage. They actually, you know, like performing. They're actually really getting something out of it. You know, and that's kind of like the emotion that you kind of have to try to get to. You're right. Like the approach that I took and how you just described it, I think a lot of people take is kind of a selfish one. And yeah. it's not about us. I know. It's kind of funny. You're very like I was saying to someone else the other day, it's like you just have to get out of being so selfish. You know? Yeah, and that can actually be applied to how you approach business because it could be an easy and safe move not to inject conflict or not to engage your enemy with an idea that you have. Has that ever blown up in your face? No, because I think it's like I was saying, I'm pretty transparent. So when you're transparent about what your motivations are, you can't really get, you know, be faulted for it. And I think it's also, it's disarming in some ways, right? And, and honestly, it's not like you're saying anything that the person didn't know already. So if you go up to someone and you say, hey, listen, you and I are disagreeing all the time, right? And I just want to run this thing by you because I'm curious how you think. It's hard for that to blow up in your face, I think. Because what are they going to say? What? What do you mean? We don't ever disagree. I don't. I, I guess maybe someone, if they're trying to be sheltered, would say that. But Or maybe they would say, oh, really? You think we disagree? What's that about? That would be the positive side of it, I think. But usually they'll say, like, yeah, we do think differently. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's just me expecting the worst out of people. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, Rochelle. Yeah, thanks so much. I had a great, great time. Me too. This has been eye-opening. So thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Just a friendly reminder, we always want your answers to our question, how do you challenge yourself creatively? So send us your voice memos to podcast at creativemornings.com. Next week, we'll hear from public speaker, educator, singer, and raptivist, Aisha Fukushima. I want to talk today about love work as the most ideal work. That work that, yes, it can be hard, but it also feeds our soul. 
right? It's something that fuels us and energizes us every single day, every single morning, even with the challenges that come with that. Our thanks to Rochelle King and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Matt in North Carolina. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com.